0: Hello, and welcome to Slush, a publishing podcast. I'm your host, Eric Harden, and on this week's episode, I'll be talking with a special guest all about publishing jargon. One of the biggest barriers preventing a young professional from entering the industry and understanding what they're talking about is all of the jargon that the publishing industry insists on using. There's so many confusing terms, acronyms, abbreviations, etc., that make learning about and working in publishing extremely confusing and just much harder than it needs to be. So I am thrilled to have a wonderful guest this week who's agreed to join me to talk through some of the terms that we both feel are the most important to learn as a young professional. Her name is Fuyinzi Adegbon-Mire, and I'm about to list off some really cool things about her, but first of all, you just need to know she's a wonderful human being. I'm so lucky to call her a colleague and a friend. She is currently the associate editor at Firewall and Friends, an imprint of Macmillan Children's Publishing Group. She was named a Publisher's Weekly Star Watch honoree in 2021, and she is also the editor of the U.S. edition of Ace of Spades, which, you know, if you don't know the book, it was an instant New York Times bestseller, it was a 2022 NAACP Image Award winner for Outstanding Literary Work for Youth and Teens, and it was also a 2022 William C. Morris Award finalist, among so many other awards. And it was also, as you'll find out in this episode, Foyanzi's first acquisition as an editor. So, you know, she's just way too cool for any one of us to know. And yet here I am chatting with her for over an hour about publishing jargon. So please take the time. It's such a wonderful discussion. And I think it's going to be so helpful for those of you looking to enter the industry. So please enjoy this interview with Fuyenzi. Thank you so much Fuyenzi for taking the time to chat with me about all the different confusing terms in the publishing industry.
1: Oh, no problem at all. And yes, there are a lot of confusing things in this industry and acronyms and terms. So I'm happy to be here.
0: Yes. But before we get into that, I do want to ask you a couple of questions just so my audience can get to know you as a person and a professional. So first, how did you get to this point in your career? Basically, give us a full rundown of your resume. Who are you? Where did you go to school? All of that stuff.
1: Yes, my history. So basically, when I was a senior in undergrad, because I did grad school in undergrad, but when I was a senior, I thought about it. And I said, my plan to have a novel published by the time I graduate is a bit off track because I didn't even have a full novel drafted yet. And so I, publishing had been something, I didn't really know much about the publishing industry. And I never really, as much as I loved books, I never really thought about like you know, there are all these different people behind the books that I love and that everything you see in a book, somebody had to make a decision to put it there. So however, I finally realized that publishing was a thing. I thought, you know, editorial seems like a good place for me to be because I take workshop classes at school and I like helping people with their stories. And I like, I not only love telling them what's working, what needs to be stronger, but also what's working really well. Like I love gushing to people about their stories. So I said, you know, let me try editorial. So I was lucky enough to have a professor who knew another professor who used to work in publishing. And so I one day just randomly mentioned like, oh, I'm looking for like a summer internship in publishing. And she connected me with this other professor. And that professor was nice enough to connect me with the head of HR, Simon & Schuster. And so... I went to speak to that person. And this wasn't a formal interview or anything. It was just basically like an informational interview. And so when we spoke, I happened to mention that I was going to be a student again in the fall because I was going to grad school. And she was like, Oh, like you're still gonna be a student. That means you can qualify for our fall internship. Cause I think at the time you had to be a student to to do the internships. And so I was lucky enough to intern at Simon and Schuster Books for Young Readers that fall. And I really liked it. And I was like, you know, this is good because I have no backup plan. But I was like at the same same time, you know, is it just publishing in general that I like or like is it just specific to this company? So I wanted to do another internship. So I ended up interning at Macmillan under the FSG Books for Young Readers and then after that, a month after I left, I heard about a job opening up at Flywheel and Friends. And one of the editors here reached out to me and said, hey, would you be interested? And I was like, yes. Not only because my savings were running out and I was unemployed at that time, but because it was children's books and I love children's books. So yes, yeah, June 24, 2019, I started working officially at Flywheel and Friends and I've been there ever since and it's been great.
0: Great. Uh, Okay, so my next question is, what are some of your favorite projects or titles that you've worked on so far in your career?
1: Um, I mean, I think one title that will always have a special place in my heart is Ace of Spades by Farida Abikei Yimide. It's a YA contemporary thriller that's basically like Pretty Little Liars meets to Get Out. And it will always have a special place in my heart because it was the first book that I officially acquired. Because before then, I had been lead editor on something, but it wasn't something that I acquired. So this was the first time that I like sat in an acquisitions meeting and presented the book. And the first time that I like got to sit in on all these meetings and like get on an author call and stuff so yeah it'll always have a special place in my heart because of that and it's like for my first acquisition it was such a competitive one it's been so like amazingly successful and it's been amazing to see it was just such a great way to just dive right in (laughs) to the acquiring pool so yeah
0: Yeah. How does it feel to know that the first book you ever acquired is winning all these awards and a bestseller like you just set the bar so high?
1: (laughs) I mean, like I said, it's been amazing. Because even when we, when I read the submission, it was one that I was like, oh, we have to like pursue this. This is so great. I read it in a matter of hours. Like, I think I ended up emailing my manager at like five, six in the morning, um, which is not unusual for me because I'm a night person. But I was like, yeah, we have to get this. So like, you know, I thought it was a great story, but like, it's just to see like so many other people also like, Because I think sometimes it can be easy to be like, oh, what if I'm the only one that thinks this is good? Or what if I'm missing something? But to just see so many other people also agree that this is just an amazing story, like, has been great. Although there is also kind of a pressure that comes with that, because I feel like now, like, everything else I do has to rise up to that. But that's a good problem to have.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, Okay, and then my last question before we actually dive into the main topic of this episode is, what is one thing or like a couple of things that you wish you knew about publishing before you entered publishing?
1: Yes, Um, one thing that I wish I knew before I entered publishing I mean, I think I just wish I knew earlier on that publishing is an industry that you can go into. Because I think, again, when people think about books, they think of the author. And I think there's the idea that somebody writes a book and then it just magically ends up in libraries. So I just wish that that had been something that like had been presented to me a little earlier on. Like I wish more schools when they have the career days, because I remember when my school would have career days and career fairs and stuff, it never felt like any of the careers were super relevant to my interest because it was a lot of STEM stuff, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I wish there was more like publishing represented in those career fairs. And, you know, I'm hoping to help change that. But yeah, that's something that I wish that I knew just in the beginning was that publishing was an option. I also wish I knew how much it really I think with editorial, like, you know that it requires a lot of reading, but I don't think we realize just how much reading it requires and how much ends up like unfortunately happening outside of work hours. I mean, partly for me, because again, I'm a night person, but also because there's so much admin stuff to take care of during the day that in terms of actually editing something and focusing for long enough to edit something or like to read a submission is usually like outside of work hours. So that's something to just, you know, it would have Been nice to know that ahead of time.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I totally agree with knowing publishing was an option. And then also, I think it's so important that people know that publishing isn't just editorial. I mean, you work in editorial.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say that too. Yeah. Yeah, there are so many different ways to like, you know, we need IT people, we need finance people, we need, you know, there's so many positions that if you don't want to deal with the books directly in terms of creating the books, there are so many other avenues that you can go into. And that's something that I wish like, again, that there was just publishers had more of a presence at career fairs to be able to say like, you know, there's not just editorial or designer marketing, there's IT, there's finance, there's author events, there's all this other stuff.
0: Yeah, like I've already told this story on the podcast already, but I decided I want to work in publishing in sixth grade, but I only knew that editors had jobs in publishing. So like incorrectly, I thought I wanted to be an editor. And then when I found out what an editor actually did, I was like, that sounds like the worst job for me. It just does not fit with me as a person. But I did find a job that is perfect for me in publishing. And those jobs exist. You just don't know about them. So it's not possible to get them, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, no. And I, you know, I hope there's a way for certain jobs to be more, not necessarily outward facing, because I think some people choose certain jobs because they like to be behind the scenes, but like just in a way where like people, you know, maybe even in in acknowledgements, people like acknowledging like the copy editor and like just, I I don't know, some way to show that, you know, there are other avenues into this. Like even if you don't have an interest in books directly.
0: Yeah, that is one of my silly pet peeves that like I'm never going to tell anyone. I mean, I'm telling the podcast now, I guess, but. I'm never going to like scream from the rooftops about it, but it does kind of make me sad that like the entire team that worked on the book isn't always called out in acknowledgments. And like, I get it. The author often doesn't even know who all worked on the book, but it's like so many people put so much work into this, you know.
1: Yeah, I'm hoping that we get to a point where we have a page that maybe is not the author's acknowledgments, but just a page that just lists like, and I've seen a book. I want to say it was last night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe, but I could be wrong. But I know there was a book that actually did have the people at the agency who helped with the book, the people on the publisher side who helped with the book, like that just listed them out like their department and their name and all that stuff. And I just hope that like that happens more often because I think that's great. And I think, yeah, there's so many people that deserve credit.
0: Yeah, definitely. 100% agree. Okay, and now that we've covered those questions, let's dive in to a publishing glossary. So, for the listeners, publishing is a confusing industry on many levels. Very
1: confusing. I'm almost three years in and I'm still confused sometimes.
0: Yes, but some of the most confusing things about it are all of the terms, the jargon, the just ridiculous sounding words that we use on a daily basis that anyone who hears us talk about publishing and doesn't know these thinks we're talking gibberish. So this episode will be an introduction to some of the most important terms, according to Fianzi and I, I mean, this is not a comprehensive list. These are the terms that we personally think are super important to share, to explain. Again, this is not a comprehensive list. There is a more comprehensive list available on Slush's website, SlushPod.com. So please feel free to go there. Particularly if we don't talk about a word that you're curious about, it'll most likely be defined there. If it's not defined there, please like send me an email, fill out a form on the website, let me know if there are any terms missing. But this podcast is just the terms that Foyenzi and I feel are super important and that we can speak to. Yes. So we're going to go in a sort of alphabetical order just because I work in man ed, but also some of the terms just kind of thematically fit together so they won't be completely alphabetical.
1: Yeah. And I almost want to say that at some point you should define man ed because that's that's an acronym <laughs> that somebody <laughs> may not know what that is.
0: I'll do it right now. So Man Ed, um, if you listen to the previous episode, Departments in Publishing, you'll you'll know at least a little bit about what Man Ed is. But Man Ed is short for Managing Editorial, and we are a department in publishing that kind of handles all of the editorial stuff that goes into actually producing the physical book. So like editorial as a department does all of the, like the development to the story, making the themes sound good, making sure the characters are all good and like everything makes sense and like the story is beautiful. Then it comes to managing editorial, including production editorial, which is like a subset of managing editorial. And we polish the book so that the grammar is good. The spelling is all accurate.
1: Yes. Consistency is there, too, because that's something that I miss as the editor. Yeah.
0: Yes. So we handle like all of the, the nitty gritty, like nerdy stuff to make sure the book is as perfect as it can be. So we do a lot of scheduling, organizing. We manage copy editors and proofreaders. We do all of that nitty gritty, nerdy, down to the detail stuff. And
1: you keep us on track, so we try to. (laughs) Well, yes, um, but I really would not (laughs) be able to survive or do workbooks without somebody telling me, like, "Okay, it's time to turn this in. This is due."
0: Yeah, and that is our job. Okay, so that is an example of the kind of conversation we're going to have about these terms. So to get started with the actual list we put together, let's start with acquisitions.
1: Yes, acquisitions—the fun stuff. So basically, acquisitions is a big meeting that happens at most publishers where it will be editors come there, marketing comes there, publicity comes there, sales comes there the president of our children's group also attends our business manager who approves the finances also attends so it's basically the big meeting where editors come and say this is the book that I want to acquire that I think has a lot of potential that I think we should publish and we do a very quick presentation about what the story is about and why we think it's needed in the marketplace or why we think we should publish it and then after that other departments will weigh in like The sales department will weigh in and say, you know, we think this could sell a lot more copies than you estimated. Or we think, you know, you kind of overestimated how much we can sell of this. Or they'll say like. Books that will make people cry are very popular on TikTok right now. So this should do really well. Or sometimes marketing will come in and say, you know, the author has a big platform, so we could work with that. Or like we see us doing a big campaign for this. And so, again, all these other departments kind of weigh in and say how successful the book is going to be, basically based on, you know, data that they have somewhere. And then after that, our president and our business manager will kind of approve the finances in terms of how much the editor is asking for which, you know, kind of leads into advance, which is our next term. So I can talk about that (laughs) if you
0: want. Yeah, go for it.
1: Yeah. So basically an advance is the money that we give to authors and agents that we give to them before the book has even published. And it's basically an advance on how much money the book is, we think the book is going to make. And so like, it's basically... You know, we think the book is going to make this much money, so we'll give you some of it up front because, you know, you need to make a living while you're writing this book. And yeah, so that's basically what it is. And like a lot of the times editorial is kind of the first level that kind of decides what the advance is. But I will say we are not the last level. We do have to get approved and there are times where we may ask for a certain amount of money because we think the sales, we think we'll sell enough of the book to justify that. But then, you know, maybe sales will say we don't know that we we can't guarantee that we'll sell this many copies. And so the advance has to come down, which makes us sad. But again, we, we don't have the final say. Yeah, so that's pretty much what an advance is, and it's often split up into multiple payments because we, you know, it's it takes a lot of trust to just give someone money because they could just take the money and go. So it tends to be split up into at least two payments, but sometimes it can be five payments, which, you know, isn't fair, but again, it is what it is. But yeah, so that's basically what an advance is, and it's during acquisitions that we've prepared paperwork and we say, hey, this is how much money I would like to be approved to offer And sometimes it may be that I don't plan on spending this much money, but if it ends up being something where the agent asks for more money, that I like to have the room to go up. Or sometimes it'll be that, oh, this is a very competitive situation. And so therefore, we want to have more money to go up because there are a lot of other editors interested
0: in this and we really want it. So yeah. Another word that's related to all of these terms related to Mm -hmm. acquisitions is a PNL. Do you want to tell us what that is?
1: Yes. So a and stands for Profit and Loss Statement. And it's basically a document. It's an Excel sheet that has all these formulas already built into it, thank goodness. And it's basically a document where we input First, we input very basic information, like the title, the estimated number of pages, the pub season that we're thinking of publishing it in. But then there's like the financial estimates. So basically, like we put in like, okay, this is how many print runs we think this book is going to have or like this is how many copies we think it's going to sell. And we put in like, you know, if we give this advance to the author, like let's say $50,000 to the author with a certain number of sales, then it has all these formulas that help us calculate, is the book likely to earn out if it does sell that number of sales or like are we likely to make a profit on this book at this advanced level and with this number of sales? Or like, do we think if we have to bring the sales down, that's going to bring down the likelihood of making a profit? So it just, it helps us kind of get an estimate. And you know, of course, we're not fortune tellers, unfortunately. So we can't know how well a book is going to do. But like, it kind of helps us we just take an educated guess at like, okay, realistically, we think it can sell, you know, 30,000 copies or like stuff like that. And if um if audio or sub rights, which is maybe another thing, (laughs) term to define at some point. But rights is basically subsidiary rights. And basically, if we have world rights, they sell it to other publishers in other territories. So if they think they can sell it well in other territories, they'll give us money as well that we put into the PNL. So it's basically just a statement where we're estimating like how much we think the book is going to sell. But also, you know, if it does sell that, can we make a profit on it?
0: Yeah. And I just want to add that as far as I know, all of the math that goes into it is proprietary to each company. Like no one, no one other than the big bosses know exactly the formulas that go into it. Yeah,
1: I certainly don't know.
0: I hope to never know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, I don't want to know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there, you know, we have a as editors, we have a basic understanding of some parts of it. But again, we don't input everything because there are formulas that calculate other parts of it. But yeah, so it's the kind of thing that when we go to acquisitions, we will email out not only the manuscript, but also the PL so that everyone has access to it. And then during the acquisitions meeting, that's when usually our president and our business manager have it pulled up in front of them so that way if sales says oh you know we think the number of copies is too high so we have to bring it down or like oh we think instead of 50,000 we think we can even do 75,000 like they adjust these things as the meeting is going on so that again, when it's time to answer the question of can I offer this much money? Like can we afford to? that they have a very like again, comprehensive and realistic idea of it. Or sometimes it'll be like, oh, you know, as the editor, I put the price of the book at 1799. But then sales will say, like, oh, we can actually charge 1899 for this, or like, oh, you know, 1999 is too high for this. We have to bring it out to 1799. And like, Again, that kind of stuff affects our profit. So like that gets calculated as well. Yeah. So they they look at that to help us determine if we can actually afford to spend this money.
0: Yes, they are very confusing, but very necessary. <laughs> yes,
1: they are necessary. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Emphasis on the evil. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, OK, this next cluster of terms are all kind of the same thing. So I'm just going to give a rundown and feel free to jump in. So the first term on the list is an advanced reader's copy or an ARC or an ARC. They're called many different things, but basically they are a pre-publication version of a book that's created specifically for publicity for the book. So we send them out to reviewers, we send them to important contacts, we send them to booksellers because we want to generate buzz for the book before it gets published.
1: Yeah, sometimes we also send them to other authors to get blurbs from them, which we can define later.
0: Yes, we will define later in this episode, actually. Yeah, so arcs often also include sales and publicity information about the, the book. Uh, it might or might not have the official cover design, but it, it's very clear from the, like, the way the book looks, if it's a physical book, that it's not a final edition. It's usually a much cheaper, more financially sound, like it's much less high quality, in other words. And that's just because it's just a way for us to get buzz. It doesn't have to look pretty. It just has to share the story.
1: Yeah. And basically, people do not pay for ARCs. We give them out.
0: Yes. So they have to be as inexpensive as possible. And the reason these words are clustered together is that there are kind of many ways to describe an ARC. There are many different terms. So one is an advanced reader's edition, which is basically the same thing as an ARC, an A-R-E. They're basically the same thing.
1: Yeah, people use them interchangeably. I, yeah, I don't know if there's a bigger difference than what I've, yeah, but I, from what I've seen, people use them interchangeably, so. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think ARC and ARE are basically the same thing, but just slightly different name. And then the other one that's kind of the same, I've heard there's slight differences between this one and the other two, is a galley uh, or a bound galley, as some people call them. And galleys are uh, also a pre-publication version of the book that is used for publicity reasons and stuff. But I've heard, and I don't know if you've heard this also, Fancy, but I've heard that galleys are, like, in the order of operations of getting these made for, like, publicity reasons. It's galleys first, they come first, and they're, like, the cheaper, dirtier, crappier version. And then later come the arcs, which are, like, slightly nicer, slightly prettier. Have you heard that, too? That's, I I kind
1: of have, yeah, because I think I also... Because another term I've heard for them is like bound manuscripts. And that's usually like the very basic. It won't even have any type of cover design. Like it's it's almost a slight step above if you went to Staples and like had the book printed by yourself and had it bound together. Like it's basically that very basic manuscript just in book form. Like To give a
0: cultural uh, reference, it's like in The Devil Wears Prada. When um, Amanda Priestley, Miranda Priestley, Amanda, I can't remember her name, but Meryl Streep's character makes her assistant get bound manuscripts of the Harry Potter books. And they're truly just like computer paper printouts with a cheap cover on top. Like that's what they are. Um, so all of these things are essentially doing the same thing. They are pre-publication books used for publicity, but they have so many different names and it's wildly confusing. (laughs) Yes,
1: yes. But yeah, from my experience, they're all pretty much the same thing and used interchangeably.
0: Yes, all the time. Okay, next up, there's a big chunk of terms that are all interrelated. So how about we start with what is an agent?
1: Okay, so an agent is basically the go-between between an author and the publishing company. So the agent acts in the author's best interest, or at least they're supposed to act in the author's best interest, because the if the author doesn't get paid, the agent doesn't get paid. But also they kind of because you know as we've said the industry is very confusing and so it's nice to have this person here who's familiar with the industry familiar with the terms familiar with how to do contracts and you know knows what are good deal terms and stuff like that and so authors will send their manuscript to an agent first so most publishing companies, like editors, don't really acquire unagented manuscripts. Like we usually receive manuscripts through agents. And so you'll send it to the, well, the authors will send it to the agent first. And then if the agent likes it enough, will offer to represent the author because they think that they can sell the book because that is their job is to sell the book. And then the agent also like should have contacts with editors at different publishing companies and so when they feel the book is ready they'll send it out to editors at different companies and they'll usually include a little pitch about what the book is about and like anything else they feel is relevant and then they will if the editor is interested in acquiring the book then the agent will be the one to negotiate those terms like we really we don't we don't really have contact with the author at this stage we just talk to the agent directly and say like You know, here's what we're offering, here's what the advance that we're thinking of is, here's what the royalty rates are, like, and all this other stuff. And then the the agent, like, you know, pushes back and says, oh, we think this should be higher or we think we'd like to keep these rights or whatever. So the agent is really just like the advocate for the author. And sometimes if there's something that the publishing company wants to do that is less than ideal to the author, like sometimes the agent can kind of step in and help to like explain a little a little bit and explain where the company is coming from or to explain like, you know, like if there's news about like, oh, this publication picked up the book or included in a roundup, sometimes the agent can be the one to explain like, you know, this is why it's a big deal and stuff like that. Agents are very good people to have. And to get an agent, I guess I can go into the next term, you have to query them. And basically a query is basically a very concise, pretty brief, usually about one page letter that authors send to agents that tells them what their story is about what the books are, why they think it will sell and basically just something to entice the agent or sometimes an editor, but usually an agent to want to read the story because usually authors don't just send their full manuscripts to agents. Most agents don't accept that. You have to send them, a. it's called a query letter. So yeah, it's usually just an email or a one page thing saying like, you know, this is what my book is. This is what it's about. This is why I think it's needed in the marketplace. It can even include, like, because there's usually a section that's about the author as well. And sometimes that's where the author can say why they're the one best equipped to write the story. So let's say it's a picture book about, like, rocks or something. And the author might say, like, you know, I'm a geologist in my day job. So, like, it just kind of includes information that will make the agent want to read the story, but also, like, will make the agent think about why this book might sell or why this book might be needed. I've heard querying can be a very tough process. It's hard, <laughs> but yeah, that's what a query is. It's just something to say, hey, here's what my book is and why you should buy it, why you should wanna represent it and you know, sell it to a publisher.
0: Yeah, and this next term is one that we've said probably a hundred times already today in this recording. What is a manuscript?
1: Yes. So a manuscript is basically an unpublished book that an author submits for publication. And it usually is just, just, usually just a Word document, to be honest. Sometimes a PDF, but usually just a Word document of here's what the story is. It's not designed in a way that the final book will be designed. It's just, A document of here's what the story is. It can be very bare bones. It usually is very bare bones unless the story requires any special design or anything or like if there's interior illustration, sometimes that'll be included. But like, yeah, it's just a word document of here's the story and it hasn't been published yet. I guess we can also talk about submissions since that's part of um, the grouping. Basically, submissions are so when an author sends something to an agent that's querying, but like when it's now going to the editor, that's what a submission is. It's when an agent or sometimes an author, but usually an agent submits to editors and says, again, a very quick pitch of here's what the story is about and why it could be a good fit for you. Yeah. So that's really what a submission is. And I kind of think of it as, the way I kind of think of it in my mind, I um, don't know if this is correct or official, <laughs> um, but when I refer to a submission, I refer to something that I get from an agent, a manuscript that I have from an agent, but I do not usually call it a manuscript until I, unless I acquire it. So like if I tell someone like, oh, I'm working on a manuscript, that means I'm working on something that I've acquired. But if I'm reading a submission, that means it's something that I have not acquired yet. Again, not official, but that's just how I <laughs> think about it in my mind. But yeah, it's basically just the agent sending the manuscript to the editor or to multiple editors, hopefully.
0: Yeah. And then directly related to this, what is a manuscript wish list?
1: Yes. A manuscript wish list is basically a, a list of genres, age ranges, topics, tropes, formats, and things like that that an editor or agent are, is interested in working in. So there are a couple different ways to find people's manuscript wish lists. So one way is there's actually a website called, I think it's mswl.com, but there's an official manuscript wishlist website where agents and editors are listed and we have control of the page. So we can include again, like what age categories we work on, what genres we work on, what tropes we really love. There's also a, a section to include, you know, other interests outside of books. So like, My manuscript wishlist, for example, says I want a YA novel that is Taylor Swift's song Blank Space, just in YA novel form. It also lists, you know, the TV shows I enjoy and the movies I enjoy and that I enjoy bullet journaling and stuff like that. So it's basically something that gives people an idea of what an editor or an agent would be interested in so that when you're looking for an agent or an editor, you can have an idea of like okay, this feels like a person that would be interested in my story or like would want to represent my story, would want to acquire my story. And then the other way to sometimes access is on Twitter. There's a hashtag called MSWL. So sometimes if you just search that hashtag, you can see like what agents and editors are like saying they want. Sometimes an editor will tweet like, you know, let's say they just watched the Gossip Girl reboot and they'll tweet, I would love a novel like this, hashtag MSWL. I don't know why anyone would want that as a novel, because that was a terrible show. (laughs) Yeah, don't watch the reboot. (laughs) But like, it's, you know, again, it might be just sometimes it's a serious thing, but sometimes it's just a very lighthearted. Like, I just listened to this song and I would love a book that has the same vibe of this song. Yeah, so it just gives people an idea of who could be best to represent or edit their story.
0: Yeah, great. And then finally, the last in this grouping of terms, there's so many that relate. What is an auction?
1: Ooh, an auction. That is a really fun time when (laughs) (laughs) there are... um, So, you know, an agent will send out a manuscript to theoretically multiple editors. And sometimes there'll be, let's say, three editors will respond to the agent after reading the manuscript and will say, hey, really love this. I think it has a lot of potential. I would love to make an offer on it. And so the agent will... Firstly, they'll we'll get back to all the other editors who have it to let them know that, oh, there's interest in this. And so those people can kind of decide if they want to step aside or if they want to enter as well. But yeah, basically an auction is when there is multiple editors interested in in a manuscript and we get certain terms. Like sometimes it's a best bids auction, which means that you have to send your best offer right off the bat. You get one chance to make an offer or forever Hold your piece. Or sometimes there'll be a rounds auction, which is the agent will say, you know, we'll do two rounds. And so you don't necessarily have to send your best offer in the first round, but usually they'll take the top however many offers and those people will get to move on to the next round. So it really just depends on the agent and the agency. But yeah, it's basically the sale of a manuscript that multiple editors are interested in. And On the editor side, it's a very stressful time. (laughs) It can be nerve wracking to wait to find out if you are, if it's a rounds auction, if you're moving on to the next round or if it's a best bids auction, whether your offer was indeed the best bid. And what it is not, though, it is not us gathering in a room and holding up the little fans with like numbers on them (laughs) because that's what I thought it was before I like really learned what it was I thought it was a bunch of editors going together in like some secret room and holding up a like little like number fan saying you know I can do 50,000 I can do 100,000 but it's not as animated as that it's just us anxiously watching our emails all day and they can span from like I've had an auction that was over by like the next night, I think, where it was officially like, okay, you are the person that we're choosing to move forward with to negotiate other stuff. But then I've had an auction that lasted for like over a week of just back and forth. Again, very nerve wracking and stressful. But you know, it can be an exciting thing from the author perspective to know that there are multiple people interested in your book. But at the same time, like even if a book doesn't go to auction, even if there's only one editor interested in it, it can still be incredibly successful. So Yeah. And some books go to auction and they don't sell a lot. So like it really, again, we're not mind readers. We don't know what what's going to sell well.
0: Yeah. Okay. great. Um, I have to say when I found out that there wasn't like a Southern man at the front of the room calling out the the books and stuff, I was so sad. I was
1: very (laughs) disappointed. Like I truly thought, yes, we take trips to some place and, you know, we say I can do 75,000, I can do 80,000. But no, no, it's just sending an email with the word document saying here, the terms we're offering and Please accept us. And you know, a lot of the times it does come down to who pays the most money, which, you know, valid. But sometimes it can be a matter of, and a lot of agents will say this, like they reserve the right to not choose the person with the most money. Because sometimes it can be a matter of the author feeling like, okay, this editor like has a better understanding of my story. So even though they're not offering as much money as another editor, like I still trust them enough or I feel like their vision is aligned with mine enough that I'm willing to go in this direction. so does it happen often, but it does happen sometimes.
0: Yeah, definitely. Okay, our next term, what is a blurb?
1: Um, A blurb, it's basically a quote from an author or celebrity or influential media that says this book is really great and you should buy it and you should read it. So it's basically like a way to show people that like, you know, it's just another marketing tool to convince people to read the book. And so with blurbs it's usually the editor that will request them so i'll reach out to like you know i'll usually ask my authors are there any people that you think should get this book that you think will want to read it i usually ask all other authors and they'll send me their list and i'll reach out to those authors or their agents and say hey like here's what this book is about it's publishing You know, July 2022, would your author be interested in reading it and potentially blurbing it? Because the thing is, like, blurbs aren't guaranteed. An author might read a book and just never send a blurb because maybe they didn't like it enough, which is valid. But yeah, so it's basically just a quote from somebody who is influential on some level or a publication that's influential on some level saying like sometimes it'll give a little hint about what the book is about but it'll also say like you know unputdownable, great thriller you know had me on the edge of my seat um those little phrases like you usually find them in blurbs and i've seen i'm curious do you as a reader do blurbs
0: sway you um not really but i my thing is and i'm a like i don't know that people in publishing would be happy that i'm saying this but oftentimes i read reviews before i buy a book so i like i'll go to goodreads even though goodreads is often it's i'm gonna say it's kind of a cesspool at times but (laughs) um i i do go to goodreads and i'll average out like the most positive and the most negative to like get a sense of what the general like middle would be i don't trust the blurbs i think
1: yeah i i Honestly, like, it's something that I always wondered, like, are they still effective in today's day? Because I also, as a reader, like, I don't know that knowing that a popular author, even if it's someone that I like, I don't know that knowing that they like something is going to, because I'm like, you know, I don't, unless I know we have the same taste, just because they like it doesn't mean that I will. Like, so I feel like unless it's, I don't know, Taylor Swift blurb something that I would definitely like that would catch my attention. Um, But I think, and it's funny because I was talking about it with my best friend and we're so opposite in that when I see a blurb, I look immediately at the author or the name attached to it and see if, is it a name I'm familiar with or is it like someone I know? And if it's not, I just kind of disregard it a little bit. Like I don't really like pay attention. And even if it is a name that I know, like, It's more just go, oh, that's cool. But like, again, that's not necessarily going to make me be like, I have to read this book now. But he's the opposite where he'll look at the like words, the actual quote itself and like disregard the name. So yeah, it's just interesting how that works. But yeah, I'm always curious, are blurbs still moving the needle these days? And I mean, who knows, but it is nice to just be able to put it on the book's cover or on the book's webpage and stuff especially when you can get huge people like, I don't know, Stephen King or like Angie Thomas to blurb something, then yeah, it's powerful. And that's the other thing too, is that when we're thinking of who to get blurbs from when it's other authors, we usually try to get people who are kind of right in the similar genre. Because the idea is that if this is a YA thriller and it's blurbed from a YA thriller that people like, they're more likely to pick up the book. Very rarely will I ask for a blurb from like an author who's known for fantasy if I if I have a YA thriller, I'm not really going to ask for a blurb from an author who's known for fantasy because those fans don't always cross. Uh, <laughs> they're not always the same group of fans. Um, yeah. So we just try to target who would be the reader of this book and let's let's go after the other authors they're likely to read.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And so as a segue to our next term, would you say that we're only asking for blurbs from comp titles? Or basically, not only, but pretty much. Yeah,
1: that's, that's basically, yeah, that's a good... And if it's something I can use as a comp title, then yeah, I'm likely going to... The author would likely be a good person to ask for a blur.
0: Yeah, and what is a comp title? Yes, a comp title. So that is... um comp in this
1: case is short for comparative title and it's basically a book that is similar in format age category tone subject matter and genre that was published within the last two or three years and when it comes to um like sales comp they're usually the books that have sold about the same number of copies that we expect this book to do so for example like If I have a book that I think is going to sell at least 30,000 copies, then I would look for other books that are, again, in the same genre, same format, you know, hardcover versus paperback, same age category and all that stuff. And then look up their sales and, you know, hope that they like have at least thirty thousand or you know twenty-eight thousand or something. But if it's like there are times where I'll find a book that I'm like, oh, this is a perfect comp for this. Like, you know, it it very much feels this they have similar tones and similar subject matters and stuff. But then I'll look at the sales and it's five thousand. Um, and that's great. Even getting five thousand in sales is amazing. But it's just like again, if I if I expect this book to do thirty thousand, then I need other books that have sold at that level or like If I need a book to have at least a 100,000 in sales because I want to give a higher advance, then I'm going to need to find other comp titles that have a 100,000 in sales. So comp titles are the bait of my existence because they are so hard to find because there are so many parameters and it's so hard to like check off everything. And then on top of that, it's just tough because some things are so niche that there are not a lot of options for comp titles. And then like the ones we find don't have enough sales. And so sometimes it's to the point where we can't acquire whatever the submission is. And then that then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because then that's one less title that someone could comp in the future. So like, it's just tough because sometimes I'll be like, oh, picture books about friendship. Like, you know, those there's a million of those. But then again, when it's time to actually find specific titles that are about friendship and came out in hardcover and came out within the last two, three years and have 15,000 in sales, then that narrows it down a whole lot. Yeah. So that is comp titles. And, you know, they're kind of problematic, but I don't know if you want to get into that. <laughs> um, but
0: yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's. It's tough that an industry that so desperately claims to want to diversify is so based on publishing the same books that it's already published.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that is my biggest. Because it's like, if a comp title doesn't exist for a certain project, that should be a good thing because it means we're doing something new. And it's like, you know, I get that it's a business and we can't take a chance on everything. But, you know, hopefully in the future, there's a way to like take a little more chances on stuff because, again, comp titles are so like difficult to nail down and like you know we talked about querying earlier and queries and like oftentimes it's good to include two to three comp titles in your query to just say you know my book is like the hate you give meets to all the boys i loved before which would be a very interesting combination (laughs) yeah those were just the first two that came to mind (laughs) um but yeah so it's just basically a way for people to have an idea of what the book is about very quickly um so again it's usually like oh. It's this meets this, or it's, you know, it has the world building of children in blood and bone. It's, that's behind me. <laughs> and also the, I don't know, the romance of to all the boys I've loved before or something like that. So like, again, just a way for people to get an idea of what the book is and is about and what the tone is, but also like how successful the book might be.
0: Yeah, I often think like, obviously, comp titles are used for financial decisions, but also when describing a book, they're kind of like the elevator bitch.
1: Yes. Yes. The elevator approach. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now that we've gotten through that thorny topic, (laughs) let's move on to some things that I'm going to talk about. Feel free to jump in, but these next two are, I think very important because often people get very confused between the two, partially because they're so closely related. So first is copy editing, which is a very important topic to me because I hire copy editors, um, and copy editing is the process of revising an author's manuscript so that we can improve its readability, make sure that the text is free of grammar and factual errors, make sure all the words are spelled correctly, make sure everything's consistent. It's like polishing the book. It's like the first polish that the book gets after it's come to the managing ed group.
1: And copy editors are heroes because every time I think I've caught everything, I've caught all the repetition, I I've caught the consistency is good. Um, as in like detail consistency or like timeline consistency and then I will get a manuscript back and it'll have a hundred queries and I'll be like, Well, I thought I caught that, but yeah.
0: My my favorite thing to see in a copy edit is when they've noticed that the author uses a certain word like too yes, often.
1: Yes. And then suddenly <laughs> I cannot unsee that. <laughs> like- yeah I'm like, you know what how did I not notice this the per they'll be like you know within like this one paragraph they've used I don't know the word Taylor like 10 different times not not the name the word 10 different times and then it's a, like then I have to be like to the author I have to be like do you want to switch some of these up because now like now it's I can't ignore it and it feels very glaring and like annoying now
0: <laughs> yeah I have a book yeah. that I'm working on right now I won't say the title, but it's a YA book and the copy editor flagged that they had used a certain swear word over a hundred times in the manuscript. And like, I would never have thought to look for that, but thank God they called it out because that could be, I mean, I don't know the standard, but it seems like a lot for a YA yeah. book.
1: <laughs> yeah. No. And even just stuff that's like, oh, you know, in the beginning of the chapter, they said it was Tuesday, but like now all of a sudden they're saying it's Sunday. And so it's like just stuff like that, those little details that like, you sometimes don't think about but that really do make a difference because you know someone reading closely will pick up on that and yeah so copy editors are heroes
0: yeah i like to say that copy editors make the author look as good as they can because the author is the artist they are the creator but they're humans they make mistakes so the copy editor is there to like catch the bulk of the mistakes so that the author shines as bright as possible
1: exactly yeah because there are times like even with grammar stuff that i'm like oh i didn't know that this was I thought they used this word correctly, but clearly I don't know what I'm doing. Or like, oh, I didn't know you can't use a comma here. Like, I didn't know you, like all the dashes. I don't know the difference between them. Oh, I love dashes. I will the dashes. sprinkle a dash in anything. <laughs> like an m dash, I would just throw it right into it over anything. Yeah. So it's always fun when it's like, this is not how you use an M dash. and I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, So yeah, that's copy editors. They take the, the manuscript and they copy edit that. And then it goes into typesetting where it gets laid out the way it's going to look on a regular page, like for a book, the small like book pages. And then it goes to proofreading, which is kind of like copy editing light because copy editing is much closer reading. They're like making sure that the sentence sounds good and like, They're doing like much deeper looking at the text and like much more change happens in copy editing than it would ever happen in proofreading because the book is already laid out. So the proofreader is mostly just looking for anything that the copy editor might have missed. So like, oh, this word was misspelled or it's a homophone. So like technically it's spelled correctly, but it's not the right word in this context, that kind of thing. And then also like specifically in proofreading, they're looking at like, oh, this when we laid out this page, this word got cut off at this point and it's not the right, not the right way that this word should be broken. Or the loose lines, those are my favorite. It's like
1: there's like, for some reason, three extra spaces between words. And now the line looks very like weird. Uh, Yeah, so
0: that happens when a book is justified, which means the margin or like the spacing of the words is increased so that both sides of the words on the page are uniform to the margins. And so like sometimes if the line is short, it's just going to have so much extra space or also it's tight when there's not enough space between words and like they're all scrunched together and they look just weird. So it's the proofreader's job to like catch those things, call them out and fix them. And it's usually one of the last steps of the process because it's the book's already been copy edited. It's been fixed up with the author. The book should be pretty much done. And then the proofreader just like does a final polish.
1: Yeah, I mean, really, even by copy editing, the book shouldn't be getting any more major changes because I know that that is stressful for production. But like truly by proofreading, like we should not be adding scenes. We should not be like it should be very minor stuff is changing at that stage, even in first pass, which is when we get the full designed typeset story and stuff. Like, yeah, I'm like, this is not the place to be making any large changes, (laughs) really, because then it throws things off a lot.
0: Yeah, for some reason this uh, this uh, metaphor just popped into my head and it's probably bad, but like I just thought of this and this is not how I normally think about it, but the writing of the book is like buying all the furniture in a room, the copy editing is like moving it into the right places and like making sure it flows well, and then the proofreading is just adding throw pillows.
1: Yes. Oh, I like that. Does yeah. that is that does that make mm-hmm. any sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I yeah, I, I think that's a good way to describe it. Like, yeah, again, it's the very little details where it's like you know, maybe we didn't catch a consistency thing in copy editing or like in developmental editing. So like sometimes it'll be that or like, you know, sometimes I've had proofreaders that will point out, you know, oh, like this character two lines ago, we're sitting, but like now they're standing. So like some things sit through the cracks, but again, we shouldn't be like removing characters from the story at this stage or like anything, because that just adds so much more stress to the process.
0: Yeah, definitely. Okay. So that is the difference between copyediting and proofreading. Very valuable to now because it is pr- quite confusing. Next, we have three words that are kind of related, kind of not. So first is a front list book. And the front list is any book that has been published within the past 12 months or so at a publishing company. That is the front list. Those are the new books that they're actively promoting, actively trying to sell. So they're the ones that get like the marketing money, the publicity push. They're the ones that the publisher is actively focused on at that point. And then after that first 12 months that the book is out, then it becomes a backlist book, which is any book published by a company ever that is still in print, that is a backlist book. It's not necessarily actively getting promoted. It might not be getting a ton of marketing money. It might not be like on the minds of publicists, really, but it's still available for sale. And then depending on how valuable or like how good of a seller that backlist is, it might get more or less marketing and yes, publicity Yeah. publicity because
1: sometimes there will be a push for like a backlist title because it's like, you know, you often see this in like special months. Like right now it's Black History Month, at least in the U.S. And so like a lot of backlist titles will get a lot of marketing push during this month because it's like, oh, this book is by a Black author. So people may want to buy it now that it's February. Um, so, yeah.
0: Yeah. And Backlist is truly every book that's ever been published that didn't come out in the past year. So like To Kill a Mockingbird is a Backlist title. The Hate You Give is a Backlist title. These are all titles that published in the past. And Backlist is super important for publishing because most of the money that a publisher makes is from Backlist. Backlist Because frontlist titles, unless they're like, you know, the book that everyone wanted to buy in acquisitions and like they have a huge big name author that's guaranteed to sell millions of copies, which like is so rare. Most frontless books are not going to make the company too much money. It's over the years of like so many, like the Great Gatsby has made whoever, pu- I mean, it's in um, public domain now, I think, but whoever published it, I think it was maybe Penguin. They made so much money off of the Great Gatsby because it sells constantly over and over because it's in colleges, it's in schools, it's read constantly. All of the time. Yeah.
1: Yes. And there are some titles that, you know, when they were frontless title, like they may not have done like much or gotten a lot of sales but then like it may be like three years after they published so now they're officially backlist and for some reason there's some kind of push and like now they're selling a lot and we've been seeing that a lot with book talk which is you know the book people on tiktok like now there have been like so many backlist titles that have been selling like way more in the last three weeks than they've sold like in the last three years that they've been out where it's just for some reason the right person finds it and promotes it and now Everybody wants it, which is great for us. So even if a book doesn't do well as a frontlist title, like that doesn't mean that it's not going to do well ever.
0: Yeah, definitely. And then the third title in this kind of cluster, it sounds like it should be related to these, but it's not. So frontlist and backlist are time based. They're based on when a book was published in what time period it was published. The mid list is kind of a comment on how profitable a publisher thinks a book can be. So like a mid list title is not the bestseller and it's also not the worst seller. It is in the middle mid list and it's the books that the publisher thinks can be profitable and can be good, but they're not going to put the most amount of marketing behind. They're not going to put the most amount of publicity behind because they just don't think that it's going to get like it's not going to sell enough to warrant that much money. So it's like in the middle.
1: Yeah. Like, it's not like a, cause we have things called lead titles, which are kind of the titles for each season and season as in like for us, it's winter, spring, star, summer, and then fall that we publish in. But yeah, we have lead titles for each season where they're going to get the biggest marketing, the biggest publicity, like all the stops. And we have focus titles, which are going to get like, you know, maybe not all the stops, but they'll get a good amount. And then, yeah, there's like mid list titles where it's like, you know, they'll get something like all of our books. Theoretically, uh, get some some level of marketing and publicity.
0: Yeah. And unfortunately, I think it's a pretty obvious trend that there are much fewer, many fewer. I don't know the correct grammar there, which is probably alarming given my job title. But um, (laughs) there are many fewer mid list titles just because I think publishing has trended so much more toward what's the bestseller, what's the biggest book. And so they're less willing to take a chance on a book that might not be as big, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, which is, you know, it's it's difficult. Like when there's a book that's too quiet because it's like 99% of the books we publish are quiet. Most of them are not going to be like the New York Times bestseller or they're like, you know, super big at a huge movie adaptation or anything. Hopefully that will that will
0: change. As time yes, goes on. that is the goal. Next, we have the format of a book yes. which is the binding of the book in other words how the book at least physically how the book is bound the pages because every book is just a bunch of pieces of paper glued together but how what is the type of cover that it has that's kind of the general idea of what the format is so there's Hardcover, where they have a hard cardboard feeling cover on them that protects the pages. There's paperback, where it's like a flimsy piece of paper that is covering the book. There's board books, where like each page is a cardboardy materials. And those are for young children, so they can like chew on them and not destroy them as easily. And then there's also reinforced binding for libraries, so that they're more durable, so that people can reuse them over and over.
1: Okay, I actually didn't even know that's what reinforced binding was. So I've learned something.
0: Yeah, that's what that is. And then also, there are electronic formats as well. So, like audiobooks and ebooks for people that don't want a physical book or accessibility wise can't use a physical book. So, these are all different types of formats that a book can come in. So, like one book can have five different formats depending on if it's put out in a hardcover, if it's put out in a paperback, if it's put out audio, ebook, et cetera.
1: Yeah, because oftentimes we'll do initial publication, we'll do like a hardcover and an ebook version of the book that are both released on the same day. But then like the book may not go into paperback until a year later or like sometimes even more than that. And then there are some stories or books that for whatever reason, like it's like, you know, we should put this in paperback first because it's more likely to sell more copies as a paperback novel than as a hardcover novel or things like that. So, yeah, it really just depends.
0: Yeah, definitely. And similar to this conversation is the graphic novel, which I think a lot of people are rightfully confused because it's kind of a confusing term. So a graphic novel is a format in publishing.
1: Yeah, it's not a genre in the way that fantasy is a genre or like, Romance as a genre, like sci fi as a genre. And it's not an age category either, because you can have a middle grade graphic novel or a young adult graphic novel or an adult graphic novel. It is a format. It includes different genres, it includes different age categories. But yeah, it's something that I think confuses a lot of people.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think part of that is because of its name, because generally novel means a fiction book, but graphic novels can be nonfiction. They can be an anthologized work of like a bunch of different stories put together. Like it can be so many different things. And also, I think a lot of people get confused with graphic novel versus comic. And what I've always heard is they're basically the same thing. It's kind of like a square and rectangle situation where it's like a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle isn't a square. A graphic novel is a comic. Is a comic, yeah. Always. But a comic is not necessarily a graphic novel. A graphic
1: novel, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's how I understand it, too. Uh, That's how I've been told. So I hope I'm not lying to people, but (laughs) that's my understanding. Okay, great. So now we've covered that. I think we should also talk about what an imprint is. Would you like to take this one?
1: Yes, sure. So what I'll say is a publishing company is often split up into different imprints. And I the way I explain them to non-publishing people in my life is different teams of people that work on different types of books. So for example, there might be an imprint that like only does picture books. There might be an imprint that like they do like nonfiction, I don't know, middle grade or something. I mean, most imprints are not that specific, but like there might be an imprint for example, Firewall does picture books, middle grade and young adult, but usually like very commercial. We don't do a lot of literary um, novels. There might be an imprint that only does young adult novels. Basically, I just think of it as a team of people. And it's usually like a bunch of editors, but then there are like designers that are assigned to work on specific imprints. There are production and managing ed people that are assigned to work on specific imprints. So it's basically just within the publishing company, the large publishing company, each team has different focuses. And there's some overlap. A lot of the imprints under the children's group do like picture books or they do novels or they do fiction. But like, again, sometimes it's a difference between like we do very commercial novels and they do very literary novels or like we don't do a lot of nonfiction but they do a lot of nonfiction or like you know we do graphic novels but they don't do graphic novels we have an imprint that's only dedicated to the graphic novels so like yeah it's really just like again a team of people that are specialized almost
0: yeah definitely and I also think part of the reason imprint as a word is so often confusing is because people know a lot of these imprints by name and they think they're just a publishing company so like for instance Harlequin is an imprint of HarperCollins. It is not its own publisher. It is an imprint. And they very specifically publish romance. That is why they are an imprint. Um, And then there's like Tor at Macmillan. And um, I'm trying to think of other examples. There's so many examples.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think HarperTeen like is an imprint. So there's like there is the overall company like Macmillan or, you know, Macmillan Children's Publishing Group. But under that, we have imprints like Firewall and Friends and like Holt Books for Young Readers and First Second and like Roaring Book Press and Odd Dot that all just specialize in different things and yeah it's very like When I first started in publishing, like my very first internship at Simon & Schuster, books for Young readers, I didn't know what imprints were. I didn't know, like if anyone asked, I said, I I worked for um, Simon & Schuster, like that's all I knew. So it really was a bit of a learning curve to kind of understand and conceptualize what imprints are. Because I think you're right that a lot of people know their names, but they don't know that like this is within us a larger company.
0: Yeah, especially the big five. The number of imprints at Penguin Random House is mind-boggling. Yes,
1: <laughs> and they keep adding new ones, which is
0: just incredible. It's own oh. conversation, for sure. Um, okay, next up, what is launch?
1: Yes, Launch. The launch is a very stressful time in all our lives, I think. (laughs) But it's basically the meeting where it happens every few months. And it's the meeting where usually editors will present whatever titles that are scheduled to publish for a specific season. We present it at launch to, you know, the sales team, marketing, publicity, all these people. And it's basically kind of a reminder about what's coming up because oftentimes we acquire a book and it won't publish until two years years later and so launch is kind of the time where it's like hey remember that book that I bought like a year ago like or you know a few months ago that you may have forgotten about well surprise like you know it's publishing in you know winter 24 so here's what it's about and it's also the time to because sometimes books change so much between when they were what they were when it was acquired and what it is now and so it's the time to really just remind not only remind people like what titles we have coming up to be published but also like to explain the ways that, you know, this is what the book is now in its current state. And we also talk about like, you know, here's a little bit about the author. Like, you know, if we want it in an auction, we'll say that too. So it's basically like something to help, I think, mainly as sales, marketing, publicity teams to like be as familiar with the books as possible so that they can sell them in the way that makes the most sense for the book and the way that fits the book the best. Because, you know, we don't want them like selling a book and promising like humor or something. And the book is actually quite serious in tone (laughs) because that's awkward. Um, Yeah. So it's just saying like, you know, this is what the book is now and all that stuff.
0: Yeah. It's a way for other teams to be more familiar with the books because oftentimes they're not reading all of these books because there's so many that the company publishes. It wouldn't be possible to read all of them. So,
1: yeah. 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 So it's just, again, because usually up until this point, it's mainly been like editorial design, managing ed slash production that has that have kind of had the most familiarity with the book. But then like launch is the time where we can like tell everyone else this is where we're at. And different companies launch at different times and even sometimes within the same company, because I learned that the adult group does not launch at the same time that we do. I think we do it a little earlier. Yeah. So again, it's a specific season. Like we just launched winter 23 in like January. And yeah, that was saying like, you know, all the books that are scheduled to publish in winter 23, like from picture books to YA, like here they are. And here's, you know, any other important context to have about the book. And again, it's usually editors that present that. And it seems like now we're going to be launching spring 23 very soon, which I'm like, how? <laughs>
0: yeah, it's so fast.
1: Yeah, publishing looks so far ahead sometimes that it's just like I don't know. In my mind, spring twenty four is like both so close and both so far away. Um, <laughs> but like, same. So sometimes it's like, what year are we in? Even. Um,
0: yeah, I have that question all the time. <laughs> Thank you for that explanation of a launch meeting. They are very stressful to prepare for, but very necessary. Next, moving to what are middle grade and YA, and how do they differ? Yes.
1: Yeah, so middle grade and YA are, and YA is young adult, but you know, a lot of times we just say YA, but yeah, they're basically age categories and they often indicate the target audience for a story. So for example, something like The Hate You Give is a young adult novel because it's targeted and aimed and appropriate for teenagers, even though, you know, of course other ages can read it as well. And then something like Amari and the Night Brothers is a middle grade because that's who it's targeted for. And oftentimes the age of the main character or characters is also the same age as the target audience, but that is not always the case because there are some like adult or young adult novels that have younger characters, which can get confusing. (laughs) But like, yeah, so for middle grade, it's usually the age range is usually between eight years old and 12 years old. And again, like most of the time the characters fall into those ages as well. But like usually it's saying like this book is appropriate for anyone within the ages of eight to 12 to read this and the words and the language is in a way where they can comprehend and also like the topics are handled in a way that they can not only comprehend but like again that's appropriate um, which of course what is appropriate is really subjective and differs and stuff and then young adult is usually between the it's funny because I think it's usually considered 14 to 18 but then I'm like where does that leave 13 year olds then um yeah so that's kind of usually what the young adult age ranges is like you know, the intended audience for this type of story and that it would be appropriate for it is someone between the ages of 14 and 18. But again, somebody 12 might read it, somebody 23 might read it, but this is the target audience. And then there are some stories that like kind of fall in the middle of middle grade in YA, where they're considered upper middle grade, where it's like this is maybe not something an eight-year-old would read but like it's for the readers that may not be fully ready for young adult yet but then like you have like younger ya 82 where it's again the reader that's not fully ready for like young adult or like the sometimes heavy themes that young adult deals with so that's kind of what those two are.
0: Yeah I think it's interesting and it's kind of silly of the industry to like separate things like this I mean I get why they do it for business reasons but books at the end of the day are art so like To put them in, like, two buckets is just, it's unrealistic. I mean, it's necessary, but yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think, honestly, even the way it's split up right now, like, I think there's a better system of splitting it up because I think even 14 to 18, like, that's only four years, but, like, where people tend to be in their life is kind of such a big range sometimes. Or, like, something that seems to have not picked up yet, unfortunately, is new adult, which is basically, like, the stories for the like 18 to 24 demographic kind of. And, you know, sometimes people will say that should be part of young adult or part of YA. But then you have an age range of 14 to 24, which is a huge age range. And so like, I don't know. I feel like if it was up to me, we'd have a middle grade, which is 8 to 12, 13. Then we'd have like teen. We would make teen the category and it would be like 14 to 18. And then young adult would be like 18 to 24. And then everything else would be adult. But I don't make the rules, but yeah, it's just, and again, it can be very tricky because sometimes like the main character of, I mean, we try to stay away from having an adult main character if it's a middle grade or something. But again, sometimes you can have an adult book where the main character is like a kid or a kid is one of the main characters. So like, yeah, it really can be tricky
0: sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Those are kind of the main words that Foyunzi and I wanted to cover. I have a couple like pet words that I want to share These are less necessary to know, but I just personally love them. So the first one is very relevant to this podcast because it's what this podcast is named after. um, And that is the slush pile. So this is kind of not a word that's used regularly today because, as we mentioned before, most books that are published by publishers are agented and requested by the editor. It just doesn't happen as much anymore. But back in the day, people would just send their manuscripts, like the full printed out brick of paper, to a publisher and they would get all get stacked in a pile in the in the office and then one day a bunch of editorial assistants would draw the short straw and would have to read however many manuscripts were in this pile and then hopefully out of the hundreds of manuscripts there'd be one that was worth publishing so that's why it's called the slush pile cuz most of it is just not it's not worth the time it's not worth the energy but you have to read them all because otherwise you know It's just like you could miss a gem. You could miss a gem. Yeah. Like, for instance, I think Carrie by Stephen King came from the slush pile. So there's always that chance that a book could be good. So you have to read them all. But the the slush pile, as I said, really isn't existent today. Like, it's really not a thing anymore because most of the publishing companies, like especially the big five, require that a book be agented in order for it to be acquired. And there's like arguments for and against that. I think the, the main argument for it is that all writers should have an agent because the agent will advocate for them. So like ideally they would never sign a contract with a big publishing company without an agent to yeah, write for them.
1: Yeah, and I always tell people like, cause sometimes I'll get manuscripts from authors directly. Like, I don't know if I'm listed on some agent site or something, but they'll send me their manuscript. And even when I do like conferences and stuff and I like, I open to submissions for the attendees. I always say like, please put in your email that you are 1000% confident in representing yourself if I want to acquire this, because otherwise you should get an agent. And I think agents are very important and needed
0: yeah definitely um so yeah that is the slush pile it kind of is a non-existent word today but i love it and it's what this podcast is named after so shout out to that um the last two words are kind of copy editing based words that i just really love the first is stet that's s-t-e-t and it's i think like latin or something i i couldn't tell you but it stands or it means let it stand or leave as is and it's basically a term that we use often in copyediting and proofreading to say like, hey, this change that was originally requested, we're going to leave it alone. We're not going to make this change for whatever reason. Maybe the author didn't like the change. Maybe one person made a change and then they're like, actually, that's not the correct change. We should step this. It's fine as it is. It's a way to easily let the proofreader, the copy editor, whoever's reviewing this thing to let them know that like, actually, this change is not being made. So like, don't worry about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes, you know, someone may like, want to put a comma somewhere and for the most part I allow that because I don't know anything about commas but like (laughs) sometimes it'll be like okay this will change the rhythm of the sentence so like I'll say like stat as in like don't put the comma and let the sentence remain as it currently is without a comma
0: yeah I love stat it's one of my favorite words and my other probably favorite word is an acronym actually sort of it's tk um the letters t and k which actually stand for to come the word C-O-M-E. Very confusing. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it's a way to denote in a manuscript that you're working on or in like the pages that are typeset to let the people that are reviewing it know that something will be added here later, but that isn't ready yet. So like oftentimes when we're working on a jacket, for instance, we might not have gotten blurbs in. So the blurbs are TK or the author hasn't gotten us their dedication yet. So the dedication is TK. It happens throughout the book all the time. It's just so that we can continue working on the book without being delayed by these things. But we know in the book that this is going to come later and we need to make sure to add it.
1: Yeah, it's basically like a placeholder, like, please hold space for this because it is coming.
0: Yes. Um, And the reason actually that it's the letters TK rather than TC is because the letters TK don't really appear much in the English language next to each other. So it's much easier to like see it in text, like especially back in the day when they were like doing a lot of the work on physical books, the letters TK just kind of like don't look right together. So that's a big reason why they were used. And also now like in digital stuff, we can just search the letters TK and like we're not going to get like, if it was th, then we'd get, like, all the thes, all the throughs, <laughs> yeah, all the, you know. Yeah, and it
1: goes tc, yeah, who knows? Exactly.
0: Like. So, it's much easier to search through a manuscript to find the tk's because there's much less, like, you're not going to run into a bunch of words that have the letter t and k next to each other. So, it's a very useful tool to make sure that, like, we don't miss anything that needs to be added later on because... There's always going to be that TK to let you know something's coming.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Actually, now that I think about it, I love TK too, because I I rely on it a lot because I'm like, yeah, I don't have the acknowledgments, I don't have the dedication. Like I don't have this thing, the author's note. So yeah, it's all TK.
0: Yeah. I use TK in my life just personally all the time. Yes.
1: Everything is to come.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I do it all the time. I love it.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Okay, well, that is the entire list that we've prepared for our listeners today. Thank you so much, Frenzy, for taking the time to no chat problem. about these words.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's been so great. You're a phenomenal person. I, I mean, I've told thank you this you. before. I adore you.
1: And <laughs> still Thank and you. Through, sister. you
0: <laughs> are a shooting star in this industry. I hope you never leave. I hope thank you. no one so ever drives you. you out. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Um, yeah, before we go, did you, is there anything you want to plug, like your social media, any upcoming titles oh, you're excited about? Yeah.
1: Um, Sure. Okay. So as far as social media, you can probably find me on Twitter because that's where I live. And so it is my name, F-O-Y-I-N-S-I underscore pub, P-U-B. And yeah, so that's where you can find me because I love Twitter as messy as it can be. And that's where you can find a lot of publishing people and a lot of publishing information and news and stuff. So that's how I keep up with the industry. And then as far as anything I want to plug, I mean, I'm going to talk about two books. One is coming out this year. The other is coming out next year, but I just want to talk about it. There's a book I'm working on called Twice is Perfect that's coming out this year. And it's a YA contemporary about a girl who, see now that you know what YA is. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, a young adult contemporary novel Um, about a girl who is Nigerian-Canadian. And she is helping her cousin plan this big Nigerian wedding, you know, kind of like Crazy Rich Asian style wedding. And she is also like in her school's debate team. And she's kind of struggling a little bit because there's so many expectations placed on her, especially from her parents, because about six years before the book begins, her brother like disappeared and she doesn't know why. And then she sees him again somewhere and they kind of start to rebuild their relationship and stuff, even though her parents don't know. So it's just kind of her dealing with all these like expectations from all these angles and thinking about like, you know, what does happiness look like for me and you know would I be happy as a lawyer even though that's what my parents want me to be like is that the real path for me yeah so that's coming out July 2022 yeah so very exciting and then the other thing I want to plug is study break um which is coming out next March hopefully um and it is I say hopefully because things get moved all the time (laughs) but like yeah so it's coming out next March and it is a collection of short stories about They all take place on the same fictional college campus, and they all deal with different aspects of the college experience. And as someone who's coming of age was in college and not in high school, it holds a special place in my heart because I think there needs to be more college stories because, you know, not all of us come of age in high school. It's a collection of short stories. All of the stories are written by Gen Z authors. And so they're all either currently in college or like graduated within the last two to three years. So it's a very fun, lighthearted collection and just deals with like, you know, questioning your major, questioning your identity and your crushes and, you know, pursuing your crushes. But, you know, having graduation coming up and like having to deal with finals and stuff and just, you know, all the fun college stuff. So yeah, those are these two things. Thank you.
0: Yeah, no problem. I mean, if you're listening to this and you don't absolutely have to buy those books, I don't know what's wrong with you. Also, Foyenzi is an A-plus follow on Twitter. She is so hilarious, so intelligent and thoughtful, and it's just, uh, it's great. So. Oh my God.
1: I'm so happy to hear that because my Twitter <laughs> is my pride and joy. <laughs>
0: like, I love your is- Twitter.
1: Thank you. I just, yeah, I have such random thoughts. And like, it's so nice to have a place where people like understand what I'm talking about. Because in my day-to-day life, I don't have a lot of like publishing people around me or like people who are into books. So like, it's fun to be able to tweet about a book or something or like even about Taylor Swift and like have people who are like, yes, I feel this so much. And I love gifts. So that's- Who
0: doesn't? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So- Again, I'm going to say it again. Follow Fayenzi buy every book she ever edits. Um, Please do. Support her forever. She deserves it. And thank you so much again, Fayenzi, for taking the time. And thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Slush. Please visit slushpod.com where you'll find episode transcripts, free resources, and forms to submit questions and feedback. You can also follow Slush on Twitter at SlushPod, and if you are so inclined, please rate and review the podcast. Slush is hosted and produced by Eric Harden. Slush's logo was designed by Shelby Pack, and its theme music comes from the song Good Luck Charm by Olive Music. Any views expressed on the podcast are personal and do not reflect the opinions or interests of the host's or guest's employers. Thank you again for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.